Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today we are talking about Lady Libido, uh, very stereotypically something that almost doesn't exist, or it's policed, um, or it's not good enough. Um, basically, Lady Libido gets kind of the short end of the stick a lot of the time. Lady Libido sounds like an actual character, like Lady Luck. <laughs> uh, it I, should be. I feel like she would be wearing sweats. Okay, honestly, I'm just imagining a Kathy comic. <laughs> Lady Libido is just like, ack. I'm so I'm so tired. Don't make me try on a swimsuit. But I picture her more like, okay, maybe it's Kathy, but she's in an evening gown. With like a cigarette and a long cigarette holder, and she's making eyes at Garfield. Uh, I, a psychologist would probably have a field day with like our, <laughs> your much more glamorous perception of Lady Libido. <laughs> Yours is more comfortable. Or uncomfortable for all of the. Mentally. All of the pressure. Yes, everything. Physically. Lady Libido needs a vacation. Partly because there's been medicalized pressure put on her. I'd yeah. say most recently with the uh, flabanserin or uh, better known by its brand name, perhaps now Addy. Yeah. Um, and I can't, I literally, when you said that my mind went blank because in my head, when I read the actual, would, would you call it the generic name for Addy? Yes. The, the actual medicine's name. I, it starts with the letters F-L-I-B. And so my brain immediately goes flibbity gibbet. Cause I, I don't have the patience to sound that word out for myself, apparently. Well, it kind of is flibbity gibbet because it's constantly described and hailed as the so-called women's Viagra, but it's not that at all. No, it's literally, yeah, it doesn't, it's not functioning on the same parts of the brain, body, whatever, as Viagra does in men. It's almost like an antidepressant in, yeah. in that you have to take it every day yeah. and rather than um, impacting your blood flow to your genitals as Viagra does, it more impacts the blood flow around your brain. Yeah. So it's in there tinkering with all of your neurotransmitters, doing things with your dopamine and such. Well, and it makes sense because a lot of our libido happens in our brain. Totally. Totally. I mean, like literally in our brains because of those chemicals, but also just there's that mental emotional connection that if you're not if you're not feeling it, then you might not be. Feeling it. Oh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Well, so there's there, there's all of these parts of your gray matter that are involved in getting aroused, having a sex drive, wanting to get intimate. Um, and a couple of them include the amygdala, which I feel like is a sminty all-star. Yeah, the, the amygdala is uh, such a wily little nugget of our brain because it's responsible for our rage, but also our raging passion. Oh. Okay, so when I flip tables over, that's my amygdala? When you flip tables over on the way to the bedroom, <laughs> your amygdala is just going wild. Your lady libido, she has lit her cigarette. My, she's actually lit two. <laughs> she's got the whole pack in her mouth. And she's ready to get out of business. Um, Not again to go off on a tangent, but a, again, uh, amygdala, 
my brain trip my brain trips over the word amygdala and sometimes it pronounces itself in my head as amygdala so then i think of queen amygdala so then i pronounce it as as queen queen amygdala so we've got lady libido and queen amygdala i like this i like this cast of characters yeah um and i would like to quickly note about uh lady libido's smoking habit that we are in no way endorsing cigarettes no not at all Smoking is bad. Yeah. And, honestly, and actually bad for your libido. Yeah. It's bad for your libido. It's bad for your brain, your stamina. And also it just makes your breath smell. True. Mm, true, and, true, true. And that's not a turn on. No, no. But if we look back at the sexy gray matter and re- revisit Queen mm. Amygdala for, for a moment, researchers think that the size of your Queen Amygdala mm-hmm. may be in proportion to your sex drive. So the bigger your amygdala, the more sexy you feel. I mean, that's what it sounds like, which gives us a whole new like sexual comparison. That's it's there, but it's just not visible. Yeah. Forget about how how big your hands are. Donald (laughs) Trump. Let's talk about your amygdala. Actually, let's not. Let's not. Next up, we have the hypothalamus, because this produces that post-pleasure dopamine, which is critical not only for all of those good feelings, but also the motivation to, you know, get off the couch, throw over some tables if you're Caroline. (laughs) And in my evening gown. Yes. And once I'm in my evening gown, I should also be concerned about my pituitary gland because this secretes a hormone which stimulates my ovaries to produce estrogen uh, but the thing is, it also produces prolactin, which is that quote unquote mothering hormone, which typically, uh, increases during pregnancy and breastfeeding, and that actually lowers libido. Well, and the prolactin is often, uh, considered the culprit in what we often kind of in like a binary way consider like women's inability to just have uh, unattached sex because we get that prolactin if we have an orgasm that makes us want to bond rather than just get out. Tell that to my college self. Okay, anyway, speaking of age, though, um, there was this 2010 study that finds that as your fertility declines, your sex drive actually ramps up possibly... So that you'll take advantage of those waning days of baby making. So like, hurry back it all in. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's also those like mental emotional factors too of as you get older, perhaps you're less stressed about those issues of con- contraception or conception in general. Perhaps you're more likely to be in a secure relationship and more likely to have better body image. But the interesting flip side of that, of being in a secure, attached, long-term relationship, is that more recently, researchers, including Daniel Bergner, who made waves a couple years ago with his book, What Do Women Want?, which has nothing to do with Mel Gibson, uh, he found that this whole long-standing narrative that we have in our society about society about women being turned on particularly by stability and emotional intimacy and monogamy uh, is actually maybe not entirely accurate. He actually found that women show a lust drop off between years one and four of their relationship. <laughs> that doesn't take much time at all. Sure does not. But I mean, the, the idea that monogamy is a lust killer is not news. 
No, 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 no. I think I think it has more to do with the gender aspect of it being of the idea that monogamy is like such a woman thing and not a man thing and that women are then turned on by that security. It's like, well, no, let's embrace the idea that we're all different regardless of gender identity in terms of what turns us on. I'm down for that. Totally. Uh, let's talk about medication, though, mm. uh, because this is something that I have a feeling a lot of listeners can identify with, whether you are on birth control, which can absolutely influence your libido, antidepressants and anti-anxiety, anti-seizure medications will also uh, play a role in that pretty much <laughs> anything that might uh, influence your levels of hormones and or brain chemistry. Yeah. It might affect your libido in either way, though. Mm-hmm. You know, some might make you a little randier and some might make you a little less randy. Who's Randy, by the way? Randy Newman? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly I'm playing the piano all the time. <laughs> well, you have Randy Newman on the piano while Lady Libido in her evening gown. <laughs> and Queen <laughs> Queen Amygdala is like, what, what in is the going? world? Can I get a drink around here, please? Yes, someone. And then there's something that I had not thought of or read about before, which is that antihistamines can supposedly have a more physical effect when it comes to libido in terms of drying out mucous membranes. I had never I had never considered that before. So a doctor might recommend trying non-drug allergy therapies or second generation antihistamines like Zyrtec or Claritin. Yeah, my neurologist um told me to, quote, pop a frickin Zyrtec every morning during the spring because I get super bad migraines related to weather and especially when the seasons are changing. And apparently taking an antihistamine like Zyrtec is supposed to help my brain parts, but not my lady parts, apparently. Well, no, Zyrtec is better than. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's that's good recommendation from your doctor. And by the way, uh, this episode is not brought to you <laughs> by Zyrtec Correct. or Claritin or Kathy. And really, not surprisingly, actual physical health conditions can have a real effect on your libido. Things like hypothyroidism, depression, hypertension, and undiagnosed diabetes. Not to mention issues like vaginismus or vulvodynia where you're feeling actual pain in your vulva and vagina. Oh, also not to mention things like polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis. Yeah. So essentially we we have just a laundry list of things that can shape our libido really from day to day, week to week, year to year. And it's funny to me that we're still having these back and forth conversations about gender, gender identity, uh, sexuality and libido that like, um, men are the, the sexy ones and women are just completely frigid because back in the day, it was pretty much an open and shut case that women were hyper sexualized. So Alyssa Goldstein, uh, wrote about this in depth over at Alternate in 2014, starting in ancient Greece. Like you do. <laughs> like you do. Um, where from, from that point to the early 19th century, yeah, the pr- prevailing idea was that women are the sex crazed ones. So in Greek mythology, for instance, Zeus and Hera argue about whether men or women enjoy sex more. Oh my God, we're still doing the same thing. Thing. Yeah, we are all Zeus and Hera. <laughs> Hashtag 
Is that a hashtag? Let's make it one. Um, yeah, so apparently Hera had turned this prophet Tiresias into a woman at some point. I, I missed that myth or I don't remember it. Uh, and so she's like, hey, I can settle this. Let's ask Tiresias. He's been both. Uh, he seems like a good one to ask. And Tiresias apparently tells these gods, if sexual pleasure were divided into ten parts, only one part would go to the man and nine parts to the woman. And wasn't it when when did Hippocrates come into the situation where he thought that like semen was making up women's hair? Women had like long, lustrous, sexy hair because it was filled with semen. Yeah. So there's all these weird ideas about sexuality, sex, beauty, sexiness, and other hair things, and hair. So much hair. But of course, with Christianity, we have uh, sort of the the negative side of that. The Jezebels, women were temptresses who, thanks to Eve, thanks, no thanks, uh, inherited this kind of sexual treachery because, of course, she seduced Adam in the biblical creation <laughs> myth um, to eat that apple, so to speak, eat that Granny Smith, Smith apple. So to speak. And the way that Goldstein breaks it down in once we get into Christian dominated societies, that sexual passion that women supposedly had contributed to their position of being morally and intellectually basically inferior to men. And that was the motivation for keeping them on a tight leash because men, you know. They're powerful and they're not as consumed by lust as those sex crazed women are. And so thanks to their better self-control when it comes to sex and sexuality and libido, they are definitely better suited to positions of power. And I do think it's interesting and important to note that Puritans also did believe that women had a higher sex drive and that abstaining from sex would be a challenge for women and all sexual desire to them was normal. I mean, as long as it was between a man and a woman who were married before God, you know, nobody else. So sex drive is like totally normal and healthy as long as you're a man and a woman who are married. And it's great to go back and read uh, Goldstein's chronicling of these attitudes towards sex drive. For instance, in the 17th century, this guy Franciscus Plazonis figured like, hey, childbirth is pretty awful, pretty painful, and it sure would not be worth it for women if sex wasn't like totally awesome for them. They clearly have a higher sex drive. It clearly feels better for them. And that's still a question that scientists are looking into as as for why female orgasms even exist. Because they're great. <laughs> well, sure, but it's like, does why? that incentivize? Yeah us even doing it because it could result in us nine months later having to go through the painful act of childbirth. Mm, interesting. If only we could text Plazonis. Um, and in the 19th century, you have Austrian gynecologist Enoch Heinrich Kitsch, who said that the sexual impulse is so powerful in women that at certain periods of life, its primitive force dominates her whole nature. Man. Women were totally sex crazed. Well, and I wonder if some of this relates to an episode we did a while back um, when Sandra Fluke was in a bunch of headlines because uh, she was the one who was advocating for uh, birth control to be included in the Affordable Health Care Act. And of course, Rush Limbaugh called her a slut and alleged that birth control 
turns women into sex crazed monsters. Um, So as we were exploring the relationship in an episode a while back on uh, birth control and promiscuity and how women's sexuality has been perceived, we discovered that pretty much as soon as churches became established and were sort of the community centers where if you were an unwed mother or they would be your support system Mm -hmm. in terms of like feeding you and clothing you. And if you became too much of a financial burden, you know, that's not cool for the church. So they wanted to de-incentivize premarital sex. Mm -hmm. So you start to get all of this, these slut shaming myths um, to, discourage women from having sex. Thanks, church. Um, and it's interesting, though, that we see a hard turnaround the same time that Enoch, the gynecologist, is like, oh, women are just dominated by their sex drives. You've got people like Herman Felling who are saying that it's a totally false idea that women have a sex drive that's just as strong as a man's and that actually, quote, the sexual side in the love of a young girl is pathological. So that's that's great. Thanks a lot. And a couple years later, in 1896, Bernhard Windshield, it's not Windshield. Mr. Windshield. Mr. Windshield says that women, normal women, particularly, he says, higher social class ladies, uh, they don't have a an inborn sexual instinct. And if they do, it's an abnormality. And he says, since women do not know this instinct before marriage dot, dot, dot. They don't miss it when they have no occasion in life to learn it. Oh, my God. So many great, like, sexist and classist things wrapped up in that because he specifically calls out the normal women of higher social classes that have no sex drive. That's the norm. Yeah. Frigid white ladies. Sure. Uh, And what shifted those assumptions, as historian Nancy Cott um, has explained, was the rise of evangelical Protestantism in New England. So this ties back to what I was saying about the churches and slut shaming and de-incentivizing, you know, women exploring their libidos, their lady libidos, letting them uh, go for a walkabout <laughs> um, <laughs> and elevating this ideal woman mm-hmm. who is not you know, uh, attempting Jezebel, but rather she is the moral center of the home. Right, exactly. And that goes back to what we said earlier about, oh, well, you know, men were assumed to have less of that lusty sex drive, so they were more rational and could hold those positions of power. So it was almost like women who were involved in evangelical Protestantism, they welcomed this shift because it, perhaps would allow them to be on a more equal standing with men in their church in terms of morality and responsibility. But, of course, the trade-off being that if you are accepting, uh, you know, a better reputation, you know, to gloss over a bunch of stuff or, for lack of a better word, um, based on morality and lack of sex drive and being completely sexless, then you lose the ability to talk about sex or or be a sexual being because suddenly that's really, really frowned upon. Well, and like you said earlier, so much of this is wrapped up in racism and classism with, you know, 
the most moral and elevated woman in society necessarily being white and middle or upper class. Yeah, I mean, women of color were hypersexualized. Working class women were also totally exempt from any of these assumptions and were therefore in parallel, in tandem, thought to be more out of control, more unable to exercise power or intellect or morality. I mean, all of these things are definitely tied up with each other. All of that racism, all of that sexism and classism. And of course, by putting women on this false pedestal, or some women, we should say, yeah. putting putting uh, middle-class white women on a false pedestal meant that if they transgress, the fall was all that farther. Yeah, and what's an interesting point that Goldstein makes in terms of men versus women in the libido realm is that once sexless, frigid morality was associated with women... Uh, men were free, quote unquote, to be lustier, but it was more that if they were lusty, it wasn't frowned upon because they're the ones in power. They're the norm, right? White men in power. Like that's the norm that sets the tone. And so if they are sexual beings with a, a larger sexual appetite, it's like, oh, well, that's okay. Because it's in their nature. It's the whole, like, boys will be boys mentality. Yeah, and that's where that starts to come in. And, of course, that kind of mentality gets men off the hook for any kind of uh, sexual misbehavior or outright violations of consent, i.e. Um, reinforcing rape culture, because the idea is that men can't control their impulses. Like the script has been completely flipped to where mm-hmm. men are the ones who can't control their impulses. Thus, women as the more modest and moral members of society should be the gatekeepers, not only of their own sexuality, but also of men's, which brings us up to same song, millionth verse that we're still unfortunately singing today. Oh, totally. It's just like a, it's a fall loop-de-loop. I mean, it, it wasn't until second wave feminism, basically, that we started to have this conversation of like, hello, women like to have sex too, and not just with men and not just penis and vagina sex, but with all sorts of people, with all sorts of junk in their pants. Like, we we have sexuality and sex drive too. And it, so I wanted to make sure that we broke that background, that historical background down to show that Like, wait, we're just having to try to work our way back up to a vision of sexuality as being a human thing, not just a man thing that women aren't supposed to have. Yeah, I mean, and the whole thing also is very binary, Mm -hmm. and there is one single standard for sex drive and libido, which is um, this rather false idea that, you know, all men, all people with penises have, like, the exact same raging sex drive all the time, which does a disservice to those folks, too. And so, I mean, I feel like when we still see these questions about, you know, who has a bigger sex drive, men or women? Like, I feel like even asking those questions is completely missing the point, because what are we trying to achieve? What race are we competing in? Yeah. And so I think the the faster and Sminty is on the on the case, the faster we can normalize sexuality and sex drive And sex, period. Like, that's great. And then the faster that we can normalize the idea that different people, not men or women, different people have different sex drives, needs, wants, likes. 
Oh, gosh, the better that'll be for everyone, because we're still seeing those divisions in terms of dating, relationships, hookup culture, whatever it is, with women still feeling like they need to be the ones asked out, men still feeling like they should be the ones doing the asking. But even when you do have women who say, like, I want to take charge, like, why should I not take charge of my dating life and ask someone out? Of course, what I'm saying is very binary and heteronormative. Um, why should I not ask someone out or ask for the sex that I want? Well, studies have shown that those women, even if they're being confident and happy in themselves, they are still perceived by men more negatively or to be more promiscuous or things like that. Well, and that jives with this University of Michigan study that came out in 2011, which found that when women feel like they are not going to be stigmatized for uh, expressing a desire to have casual sex, then the gender differences in how we pursue that are minimized. Yes. And I mean, I think that that when you when you think starting out that you're going to be slut shamed, uh, do you think that's going to have an effect on your libido? Like you can't be free to be you and me? Well, Daniel Bergner author of What Do Women Want? Adventures in the Science of Female Desire certainly thinks so. I mean, his book went viral. Can a book go viral? That's like... I think, yeah, a book like is talked about a lot. Yeah. And sells copies. Hopefully. <laughs> or people just read a lot of online commentary about it. Yeah, people were definitely talking about Daniel Bergner in 2013 a lot. And, you know, we mentioned Bergner earlier talking about monogamy, that it's not just like, oh, this is monogamy with just a man, isn't the only thing that hashtag all women want. There's more to it than that. And he also says that through his studies, through his analysis of other research, women are definitely turned on by their partner's desire for them. And basically the significance of that is that it's also important to look at, if we're talking about how one thing in terms of sexuality is not better than another thing, just different, that for some people, desire comes first and for others, arousal comes first. That just depending on who you are and not even necessarily your gender, I don't know how many times we can hammer that home, uh, you get turned on in a different order. Imagine that. And so when we're operating from the perspective of heteronormative penis and vagina, man and woman sex, where there's like a little bit of foreplay and then you're at it. And both of you are supposedly turned on immediately at just the thought of sex. Like, ah, oh, okay, so there's different formulations for how people get turned on and approach satisfying sex. But it's because, I think, we do have so many of those heteronormative attitudes around libido that a lot of women end up feeling like something is wrong with them, whether that's chemically, whether that's physically. And so there has been, ever since we got Viagra in the 90s, there really has been this huge push to get some type of equivalent medicine, medication, medical answer for women. And and that's not to say that there aren't legitimate uh, disorders or dysfunctions when it comes to women's sex drives or libido or how their body parts operate. But uh, researchers over at the Harvard Medical School were basically arguing that uh, was it really the need that prompted the development of pills like Addy or was it another 
did it serve as another like really ripe pharmaceutical target? Female desire. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've been pathologizing female sexual desire ever since uh, female sexual dysfunction or FSD was named as an actual like disease in just as erectile dysfunction had been in the 1990s. And in fact, uh, hypoactive sexual desire disorder was taken out of the DSM in 2013 and has now been replaced with female sexual interest and arousal disorder. Um, and for some women, that's absolutely the case. Like that disorder does exist, but a lot of people have scrutinized the um, how, how pervasive yeah. some folks think that it must be because it's like, okay, are there actually like neurochemical physiological issues going on or are we not understanding of how our bodies work? Are we not understanding of, um, you know, how many people with vaginas uh, do not reach an orgasm through solely through penetration? Um, do we not know how to sexually communicate and on and on and on? And do we not accept what you've been saying over and over again that, Sexuality and sexual expression and libido, like gender, is a spectrum. Yes, yes. And so in that uh, Harvard article we read, they wrote, a woman's sexual responsiveness is not the same as a man's and ignoring its complexity can make difference look like dysfunction. And I bolded and italicized that in my notes because I do think that's important to note. For all of us, that we have different sexualities and sexual desires and, and different things that turn us on. And while it's good to have Addy or, or medicine or treatments like it to address issues of, um, sex drive or sexual functioning, um, I think it, things like communication, for instance, are important because I know, and like maybe TMI, but I know that my sex life is better when my boyfriend and I are openly communicating about what we like, what we want, and what feels good. And when we're open to the possibilities of trying different things. Well, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, treatment for general anxiety disorder where you can absolutely take medication, but medication will not cure it. That's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in and, you know, the, the kind of <laughs> the arduous work of practicing new strategies and behaviors. And I think that sometimes we forget about like taking a similar approach to our sexuality where you might be in a situation, your body might need, sure, a medication to work some things out, but starting from a more <laughs> behavioral therapy approach and really eliminating all of those other factors that we talked about at the top of the podcast that could be contributing to things such as picos or vaginismus, all of the myriad factors that influence our uh, our lady libidos, as we've been referring to her, um, is so important. Yeah. And so actually, Kristen and I have a special guest for you. Um, it's Lady Libido. <laughs> Come on down. Um, we actually spoke with filmmaker Maria Finizzo about issues of sexuality and libido and sex drive, especially as it applies to women. Um, and we're going to introduce you to her right after a quick break. So 
today we're talking with social issue documentary filmmaker Maria Finizzo, who's working on her next project, The Dilemma of Desire, about women's sex drive. And I was really excited to talk to her because as part of her project, she's interviewing not only everyday women about their sex drives and attitudes about their sex drives, but she's also talking to some sminty all-stars. So she talks to Sophia Wallace, who is the artist who made clitoracy happen. She's super cool. Um, and she made a giant gold clitoris that you should Google image if you don't know what I'm talking about. You can ride it. And she also speaks with Lisa Diamond, who we've cited a number of times on the podcast. She is a psychology and gender studies professor at the University of Utah, who has published a whole lot of studies on sexual fluidity. Um, and also she speaks with Erica Lust, who is an erotic film director. I bet Erica Lust knows Lady Libido. And Queen Amygdala. <laughs> But but Randy Newman, mm, mm. jury's still out. Jury's still out. Yeah, not so much. Talking about libidos. <laughs> That's my Randy Newman impression. It's so perfect. Um, but yeah, so I asked I asked Finito what inspired this project, and coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, it makes perfect sense. She was actually inspired by the work of Daniel. Bergner and his theories on monogamy and women's sex drives. Uh, she told me that, you know, she's in her 60s. She's got a daughter in her mid-20s. And she told me that she's always been really interested in women figuring out their sex drives and having agency over them. And so she wanted with this film to look into what is female desire? And beyond that, how do women exercise agency when it comes to sex and sexuality. And so we're going to talk about women's sexual expression, what we are taught or not taught about our bodies and how that affects libido. But also what amazing things can happen when women are free to explore their bodies, their partners, their sexuality and their own likes and dislikes. You can have rewarding sex lives. <laughs> <laughs> OK, get out of there, Randy Newman. So we kick off the interview by asking Finito what she uncovered through all of her research and her interviews. So what did you find in terms of how the women you spoke with defined or viewed or thought about female desire? Well, what I've um, I haven't made the film yet, so I'm in the process of um, trying to get it funded and hopefully I will. But in my research, what I have found is that um, women now, young women now, are reporting having a lot of sex, but are reporting not having very good sex. So it's not pleasurable for them. And I find that really, really interesting. And the other, because, like, what are the gains of the women's movement in the 60s, if not so that our daughters have um, freedom to be who they are and express themselves sexually in the way that makes sense for them, right? But instead of finding that world that was such a promise in the 60s, now a reality, what I find is that women feel a lot of pressure to be sexual and yet are not finding, when they are, that they're getting much out of it, meaning pleasurable orgasms. And so that to me is pretty interesting. And so I wanted to ask why, right? Why in this day and age are, is, is that not happening? 
And I think that's where the real, um, you know, that's where the hard questions have to be asked because sexual desire doesn't exist in a vacuum. Women are part of a world, right? We live in a world. And that world and all of the pressures culturally, religious, socially impact on who we are and how we define ourselves and how we then operate in the world. And so it's very hard for women today to be able to be who they are sexually, right, and express their sexual desire when the world is telling them all kinds of things about who they are, how they should behave, and, you know, whether or not it's right or good to behave the way they want. Do you feel that there are still those acceptable and unacceptable ways for women to express their sexuality and desire, and and where are these messages coming from? Well, in terms of... um, acceptable or unacceptable, that's a pretty um, personal thing. So what might be acceptable for one woman um, and unac- is unacceptable for another, right? I think where the question is is that women are not, um, women are punished for being sexual today, right? So young women, um, you know, first of all, let's just look at um, the the war that's going on against women bodies, which is the chipping away of abortion rights that has occurred um, throughout the South, 23 states now make it almost impossible for a woman to have an abortion. Okay, they want to say that has to do with right to life, but really it's a war against women, and women are being punished for being sexual, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, or wanting that. So that's one thing. And the other thing that's happening, and of course, as, as young women, you know this. This is part of your life. Is um, we live in a culture where um, women are punished for being sexual. And that plays out in all kinds of ways, including the epidemic of rape on college campuses, right? So when I went to college and I went into a bar, I didn't have to worry that my drink was going to be drugged, right? And that someone was going to take me home and rape me. I didn't have to worry about that. When my daughter and her friends go into a bar, that's part of the experience they all have to keep track of each other's drinks. Well, think about what that says to you. I mean, they do that as a matter of course, but what, is, what does that indicate that the world is saying to women? You Look out. This is a dangerous place. And if you think you can be sexual without any consequences, we're going to tell you, show you, you can't. So I think there's a lot of um, pressure on women um, not, not to express their sexual desire. And um, it's playing out in all kinds of different ways. Well, you quote on your website, psychiatrist Mary Jane Sherfy, who asserts that women's quote unquote insatiable sexual appetites have had to be systematically repressed over years. And so my question to you is, is how how did this happen? And in what ways is women's desire or their sexual expression still suppressed? Well, I think it happens because um, it's a question of power, right? And so I'm not, you know, I'm not a historical social scientist. I, I'm not an expert in looking back on how um, women have been seen throughout the ages, but certainly there came a time when women were either, you know, Madonnas or whores, and there was nothing in between. And even within the Catholic Church, you have the mother of, you know, Christ having to have an immaculate conception, okay? So that's a little odd, all right? So she can't have had sex, right, because we don't want her to be sexual, which is a natural part of everyone's humanity. Um, And so you have sex 
as it relates to women being something that women should be ashamed of. They should not be sexual. They should not want to have sexual pleasure. And that, um, and, and if women did have agency and complete control over it, I think that's frightening. That's, that, that appears to be frightening to society. And so it's much better for keeping control of everything is if we tell women that they don't really have a sex drive um, and that if they do, they're bad girls, right? They're, they're slut-shamed. So we all do it, okay? We all talk about, you know, we all roll our eyes when a woman goes out and decides to have sex with a guy she meets in a bar and then she goes home the next morning. Well, it, there's that sort of, you know, very stereotypical response, which is, you know, slut walk back to her apartment. Well, nobody does that for men. Mm-hmm. Okay, that men just get to do that. That's part of what they do. So um, women wanting to be um, sexual or, or or have, you know, express express their sexual desire have a really hard road to go, okay? They're really hard, and I think it's gotten worse. So in the 60s when the women's revolution started, you know, it was all about women having control over their bodies. The birth control pill came in, and so now sex is no longer tied to worrying about whether or not you're going to get pregnant. Okay, that was huge. And we all thought that that would change the landscape for women and women's rights and their freedom and their ability to be in the world the way they wanted completely, right? But I don't see that now. I see young women, women in their 20s, even women in high school, having to move around in a landscape that is dangerous and and worse than when I was their age because the the pressure to be sexual is huge, but the pressure to be sexual in a way that society tells you you should be sexual, which is to objectify yourself, right, for the pleasure of men, is enormous. And it's also very dangerous. Women, it, women are not accepted equally as sexual partners. They're supposed to be there for the poor men, right? That's still huge in our culture and in our society. And so I think that's one way that you know, women's ability to express their sexual desire is repressed. It's it's dangerous. Okay, you're going to you're going to catch it if this is the way you operate in the world. Um, and I think that message is really clear. Do you think this ties into what people call hookup culture? And I mean, it seems like for years we've been hearing about hookup culture being a negative. And so I'm interested to hear from you. Uh, in your research and just in your life, if you feel like this so-called hookup culture is a positive or negative when it comes to women's sexual expression? Well, I think it has the potential to be a very positive thing, right? Women are now um, living different lives than many, many years ago, and they have um, careers and career goals, and, you know, they they're they're really busy and their life is not just about wanting to find someone to marry, right? And so, you know, w- women who are in professional schools or who are in med school or law school are, are busy. And so having a relationship when you have all that else going on is very time consuming. And so a lot of women say, no, I don't really want a relationship now. We have heard men say that for years. Okay. And so I, but I do want to have sex, right? So that's a good thing. However, when I was doing research for my film, I read the series that the New York Times did about hookup culture. And they went and interviewed a number of women at schools all along the East Coast about it and women talking about why they do it and what they get out of it. 
But what struck me about it was that not a single one of the women they interviewed would give their name. So instead of saying, yeah, my name is Jane Doe or Sally Smith, and this is really, this works for me, right? And here's why it works for me. No, none of the women wanted to give their name. And so that to me indicates that there's still fear of being shamed for it, mocked, or that employers will think less of you because you are um, a sexual person, right? So that kind of morality that people superimpose on women um, is still there. And so that's where I think um, the hookup culture is somewhat dangerous for women because of the... Um, you know, because of the way they're judged when they do it, okay? So if it, we lived in a perfect world and if women got to behave the way men did, I think it's great, right? Because sometimes you just don't want a relationship, but you do want sex. And that, that we should have a world where that's possible for women to have, right? Well, so it's complicated, very complicated. It is complicated. I mean, there's a, definitely a lot of layers to it that it seems like we're still working to shrug off uh, our Victorian ancestors a little bit. Um, but even they, even they had some interesting attitudes about sex. So, mm -hmm. um, so what would you say is the missing link then between what women want sexually, what they're actually doing and what they actually get? Is it plain communication? Do women need to start giving their names in articles about hookup culture, for instance? Do social norms need to change? What needs to change for women to get what they want sexually? Well, I think what needs to change is that women have to be seen as equal partners in the world. And it's a question of equality. And women have to feel that they are in a safe place so that they can say, hi, my name is Betty Smith and I really like sex this way and I like to have it with a lot of different guys or whatever it is and women and you know whatever it is and not fear the consequences of their honesty. And you also, if you are in a relationship or even if you're not, have to feel, women have to feel that they are entitled to their pleasure. Okay, so we know men are entitled to their pleasure because that's the way we're geared. We are objects of male sexual desire and we're, we do things to our bodies and ourselves to make us more desirable to men, right? I'm speaking solely from a heterosexual point of view, right? So that's really strong in our culture. So I think a lot of women don't feel like they have the right to say, gee, that doesn't work for me. How about this way, right? And I think the other thing that's missing and that, and why I'm including the work of Sophia Wallace in the film is is knowledge about female bodies, both women and men. And so when the organ of female sexual desire is the clitoris, is A, not spoken about very much, B, misunderstood completely, um, and C, missing from some anatomy books, what does that tell you, Right. So I think what has to happen is the whole landscape has to change. It's a question of equality because until women are seen as equal, then they won't feel entitled to say, this is my right. I have a right to have this encounter, this sexual encounter, be just as pleasurable for me as it is for you. And I think that's, I think it would be really great if we could start a movement where women said, okay, that's great that that's what you want. I'm happy to do it. Now, here's what I want, right? Here's what I want. You are entitled to say what you want. And here's how you do it, right? 
so it's knowledge about your own body. Yeah, and we should uh, emphasize for listeners that Sophia Wallace is the artist behind the Cliteracy uh, campaign. Right. She, she created mm-hmm. or helped create a giant uh, clitoris that you could ride. And we mm-hmm. talked a lot about her in our episode, which we, in honor of her work, titled Cliteracy. And I have to tell you, Maria, our listeners' minds were blown, as were our own, about not only how amazing our bodies are, um, mm-hmm. but and what they can accomplish, but how research into women's genitals and gynecological anatomy, how it just seemed to drop off. It seems like once doctors realize, like, oh, that thing that women have is just there for pleasure, like, well, that's ridiculous and we don't need to study it anymore. That's right. That's right. As, as if the only important thing about female reproductive, um, about female anatomy is the reproductive, you know, it's reproductive capabilities, right? So not the whole thing, right? So and how ridiculous is that, right? I, I'm, you know, and I, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about Sophia's work is she went to the Whitney Museum when they had a huge retrospective of I think 20th century art. And she went because there were no women artists um, in the retrospective. Pretty interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. And yet there are lots of women's bodies in the art. Okay. And she talked about how she, when she was there, um, you know, they brought, she brought her gang of people running around with um, cut out clitorises and 3D glasses cut in the shape of clitorises so that they could look at the art. Um from the perspective of the clitoris. Mm-hmm. And she said she heard one little boy say to his mother, Mommy, what's a clitoris? Well, can you imagine a young girl, a little girl, saying to her mother, Mommy, what's penis? They all know what penises are, mm-hmm. okay? But why don't young boys know what clitorises are? They should, right? But nobody nobody says the word. People don't even want to say the word, right? Right. So I I think it's, you know, we are... We are the objects out there in the world. We're sexualized throughout the world. Our bodies are, right? That's, that's it. And yet the organ of female sexual desire is mostly invisible. Right? Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting stuff. Um, what, what were you most surprised to learn from your interview subjects like Sophia? What, what was most surprising to you in your interviews and research? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I loved what she had figured out, right? I mean, she's in her late twenties, you know, I'm, you know, in my sixties, so I've been around a long time, and yet, I, even I didn't understand sort of the entire size and scope of the clitoris on my own body, right? How, how is that possible? Okay, so I had to learn it from her, and I also you know, was able to sort of learn a lot of things I hadn't realized, which is, you know, that sort of the way the medical field has ignored um, the fact that women have clitorises uh, in, on their bodies, right? And so think about when you go into surgery and if uh, med students don't really aren't aware of the fact that it surrounds the entire outer wall of the vagina and is inside and right, well, they're cutting away, right? Maybe you need to have surgery where you have to have an incision made, and here you are cutting into an organ that's rich with nerve endings. And so all of, you know, her work just brought 
like just like hit me over the head with how um how frightened and the world is for women to have knowledge about their own bodies and control over them and um be proud of them right be proud of them i mean men all walk around you know it's really great when they have big swinging and women should walk around the same way with their clitorises, okay? I mean, I know this sounds like really silly, but that's but we don't. We walk around ashamed of the fact that we have this incredible organ in our body, you know? And that's, you know, her work to me is really exciting because she's really um, making us all ask questions about how we all operate in the world and we all think we've got it together and then we think about our own life and how we sometimes don't ask for the things we need or even understand the things we need. So um, I just, I I think that was, you know, and I love the way she ties it all back to the religious, cultural, and social issues and pressures that we all live with today. Yeah, I love that idea of walking around like we have big swinging because we do. They're just inside yeah, us, basically. They do. They're just <laughs> internal. They're the same size, if not larger, than the penis in terms of erectile tissue. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I know. I loved learning all of that, too. I, I felt so I felt so weird being a woman in her 30s learning about that for the first time. And think about, think about sex education now. We didn't even talk about the impact that porn is having on the way... Women your age, well, all women, younger women, young boys learn about sex. And then the way women feel they have to behave when they have sex because the expectation is now, because men watch so much porn, that what they want is for you to be the porn star they've been watching for eight hours a day, right? So think about how that impacts on a woman, right? And how she can ask for something when... The, her partner or the men she's having sex with have been watching, you know, videos where women don't ask for anything unless it's to be, have the crap beat out of them, right? Um, so think about the impact that porn has on sexual encounters. It's huge. What do you think about the emerging arena of so-called feminist porn? Well, that's one of the um, other per- people in my film is Erica Lust. And she's this wonderful woman who is a feminist, and she's in Barcelona, and she and her partner have started a company called Lust Films. And I've watched um, a number of her films and actually interviewed her for the Chicago Film Festival when they gave her an award. <clears throat> and the film, you know, it's porn, but it's porn um, with a perspective that is, if, you know, feminine, meaning the women ask for the things that they get and they ask for the pleasure and they have some control over how the encounter take goes and they're having fun with each other and it's not like it's just vanilla stuff. I mean, they, they get into sort of kinky stuff. But the point being is that the women are the ones who are saying, yeah, this is great, let's do this. Or they're not, even if they're being, you know, blindfolded and bound, it's something that they want, right? And... um I think that's really important because what's missing in the discourse of pornography, the mainstream pornography, is the voice of women. Okay. And if, you know, my 11 year old son is going to learn about sex on the internet, I'd like him to learn different things about women than what he's currently learning, right? 
And that's where it's dangerous. And it's also then I don't want my daughter to think she has to behave the way porn stars behave in those movies because that's what the guy she's having sex with gets off on, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, it's a really, you know, interesting world we live in right now. Yeah. And I don't know how closely you've been following the developments around Addie, a.k.a. Lady Viagra, uh, but there were a lot of missteps. Um, one huge one was that it was tested on men, uh, when it's, <laughs> when it's supposed to be a, uh, a pill for women who are experiencing some type of sexual dysfunction. Uh, and then of course once, uh, in testing and once women started taking it, it wasn't incredibly effective. So from your perspective, do you think that such a pill is important? Because it seems like they're trying to almost do one for one. You know, men have a pill, women need a pill. But as we all know, women's libidos and sex drives and sexuality are not the same necessarily as men. Sometimes they're greater, sometimes they're less, and sometimes they're just plain expressed differently. And so do -hmm. you think the pill like this is important? Or do you think that our focus on improving, boosting, helping women's sexuality should be elsewhere um well i you know i can't i'm not gonna say that i don't think there are women out there who have um a form of sexual dysfunction which is tied to a medical reason because i'm sure that there are but i also think that one of the biggest problems women have in enjoying sex is um an understanding of their own body and what feels good an ability to say to their partner this is what I'd like you to do um, without feeling like they're asking for too much. Um, and, and also I think, I think the, and also what works for one person doesn't always work for another person. And so I, I think one of the things that happens is that women get bored sexually. Okay. So why are we not asking questions around why do women get bored? Right. Um, and I also think women don't feel safe in sexual relationships. Maybe they're being criticized. Maybe they're being mocked, whatever it is. And so after a while, it gets really hard to have an orgasm. That's the experience you're having. So I would rather see um, maybe them go hand in hand, a conversation around what happens to women's libidos that may have nothing to do with something a pill can fix. Viagra fixes a physiological problem right? It increases blood flow. That's something that's, I'm not going to say it's easy to fix, but that's something you can fix. It's not the same for women. And so one of the things that I've I've noticed, I've read a lot about this pill, is that the improvement is very small for a very small number of women. So they don't even really know if it works. So now we're asking women to take a pill that messes with your brain chemistry. That, and it, maybe it'll work, Okay. Well, I think there are other people that might say, you know, let's look at your life, okay, and what's making your sex life not so exciting. In some cases, it's because you've been married for 25 years to the same guy. Okay, so that's the question. Does monogamy work for women? Maybe not, right? Maybe not so great anymore because one part of sexual arousal is sort of, you know, that thing that happens in the beginning when you're so excited to be with somebody because it's a little bit dangerous or a little bit scary or a little bit new. Well, it's not so new after 25 years. And so um, 
you know, these are all these questions that I think should be asked and really thought about um, in addition to the medical field pursuing whether or not there are actual pills that might help women as opposed to just medicalizing a problem which is, has nothing to do with medicine and then trying to make money off of women by giving them a pill they don't really need. You know, and I'm sure that there are people who are more knowledgeable about the medical side of this that would disagree with me because it's a hotly debated thing. But um, so I would just say that I'd like a conf- like I'd like the conversation to be broader than let's let's see if we have a pill to fix that. And speaking of conversation, you with your research and your upcoming documentary that you're working on, you're clearly opening the door to that conversation. And so I'm wondering what it's going to take for us to be able to accept women's sexuality, that it exists, and to be comfortable discussing everything from sexual preferences and kink to libido and sexual dysfunction. Well, I think it's going to have to... The com- I want my film to start a conversation, and I want that conversation to start in grade school, okay? Because little boys are taught about their sexuality, right? Because it's sort of visible and it's happening to them, but girls aren't ta- taught about it at all. Nobody says to them, oh, hey, you know, by the way, um, you have this organ in your body, and if you touch it, it's going to be a lot of fun, okay? So sex education has to include um, pleasure, not just this is what happens. And so, and, and, and this is a good thing, not a shameful thing. So it's going to take, um, you know, changing the way we treat women 180 degrees, right? So treat them as equal people in the world who have a right to A, control their bodies and B, have pleasure that their bodies, you know, provide because that's the way we were made and that there's nothing wrong with that, right? Mm-hmm. That it is a part of our humanity and it is something that you sh- you have the right to pursue. And that conversation has to start really young and that's going to be a big problem, right? We have a growing religious right in this country which is co-opting the conversation around everything. And it's a scary time. I just saw a documentary called Trapped about the movement to, um, you know, uh, reverse all the gains of Roe v. Wade and what's happened in the South. I think I mentioned this earlier. And I, I was shocked that I was unaware of how much, how much ground they had gained in taking away the right of a woman to choose whether or not she has a child. And so that's just part. I mean, this conversation has to happen all across this country, or women will lose more and more rights, right? So now you still, you, you, you know, when you go in for an abortion, they, in some states, they want to make you have a transvaginal ultrasound and look at your fetus. Well, what is that about? Okay. Like, that's ridiculous. So think about all the things that are happening to women and women's bodies. And, you know, the fact that women want to be able to have pleasure sexually is just another thing that somebody will tell them is wrong. Right. I'm wondering how lesbian women and bisexual women fit into the research that you've done. Um, Well, one of the people in my um, film is a scientist named Lisa Diamond, and she studies what she calls sexual fluidity, 
meaning that heterosexual women can have same-sex encounters um, and not be gay, and gay women can decide to have sexual um, experiences with men and, you know, not decide to become heterosexual. Um, and so I, I think um, I want to explore the differences um, between um, purely someone who's solely heterosexual, although if we believe Lisa Diamond, all women have are sexually fluid and so can have encounters, you know, with women and, and, and men. That's just part of their, embedded in their sexuality. Um, but one of the things I found really interesting when I was talking with Lee, with Sophia Wallace was that she was saying that unless women really understand the clitoris and how it operates and how it you how you get pleasure from it, then intercourse simply becomes a way of male masturbation. And I thought that was a pretty interesting thing to think about um, because you know. A lot of women don't have an orgasm when they have intercourse, and so without understanding your bodies, you're not. It's not going to be a pleasurable experience. So um, I don't exactly. I'm not really answering your question. I'm kind of wandering around here. Um, I'm hoping that um, in the film that this that sort of um, you know gay women and bisexual women and, and their desire is part of the conversation as well, because I think it it's relevant to um, certainly to women. And I, I think it's relevant to men as well. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds kind of from what you're saying, like if women better understand and accept not only their own anatomy, but also the possibility and, and give themselves the room to accept and understand and explore sexual fluidity, it sounds like that can only benefit their sexual lives, their sexual expression and their comfort level with sex. I think that's right, and I think by by saying that it can only be one way, right? You limit um, yourself exploring who you are and and um, what you're made of and what you're about, because and that's like and that's too bad, right? I don't I think that that's something that would be too bad, right? That sex can only be one way, or if you're heterosexual, then you don't ever want to have sex with women. And, and the same goes for men, right? I think that, you know, the more restricted we, more restrictions we put on ourselves, the less we all benefit, right, from all of the things in life that we could benefit from. Right. Um, well, Maria, we've, we've blown through all the questions I had for you. Is there anything else, whether it's about your documentary or about something you've uncovered about women's sexuality in your research that you'd like to drive home to our listeners before we bring this to a close? Um, I think what I would like to drive home is something that I would say to young women now, whether they're, you know, 16 years old or 26 years old, which is this. You have the right to have this encounter work for you, and your body isn't there solely for the pleasure the young boy or the man you're with, that you have a right to have it be an equal opportunity of pleasure. And that's just what I, I, I want, you know, the message of my film to come out because it's, I, I see a lot of young women who are sexual in ways that do nothing for them, right? They get nothing out of it. And I, I'm sad for them. So that's what I would hope my film does.
Well, I think that's an excellent bit of perspective for our young listeners and really, honestly, for listeners of all ages. Yeah, of all ages. I think we could all use that advice to own our sexuality and do what feels great for us. And so Mm -hmm. thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to social issue documentary filmmaker Maria Finizzo for talking to us about all of the research she's done and interviews and the work that she's doing. And I very much look forward to watching The Dilemma of Desire. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about the film as it's being made, head on over to filmartsproductions.com and look up Maria's film. It's called The Dilemma of Desire. And now, as always, we're curious to hear from you, dear listeners. What are all of your thoughts about all of these libido issues? Do you think that they have been over-pathologized and medicalized? Uh, do you think that we just need to relax and stop even talking about them? Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. I have a letter here from Joseph in response to our Queering Romantic Comedies episode. He says, LGBT movies were hugely significant to me growing up in a small southern town in the 90s. They allowed me to import gay friends and a community in high school. You mentioned an HIV rom-com, and I think you were referring to Jeffrey. Interestingly, this film was written by Paul Rudnick, who also wrote In and Out, which you discussed in detail. I did have one correction. I think you said it had been a while since you saw Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, so details get understandably foggy. But in the film, while Chi-Chi does have a flirtation with a local boy, he never has a moment where he must grapple with Chi-Chi's true identity. In an act of benevolence and knowing that they could never really be together, Chi-Chi gives Bobby Ray up so he can be with Bobby Lee, the sweet town girl who's in love with him. Presumably, Bobby Ray learns the truth about Chi-Chi's identity when the rest of the town does, but by then, he's safely in love with the blonde ingenue. This arguably takes Tu Wong Fu out of the rom-com category and into com-com. I've always classified it as a body comedy and a road trip movie. Side note, Joseph, you're so right, and that is a super important clarification. Also, I'm enjoying just reliving that movie in my mind. Anyway, he goes on to say, Also, you mentioned the queer villain in Hayes Code Cinema was a gay male role and excluded lesbians, but while the quote-unquote sissy villains were certainly much more prevalent, there were lesbian villains as well, including the titular character in my favorite movie, All About Eve. Also, very famously, Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca. All About Eve actually features both a lesbian villain and a quote-unquote sissy gay man villain who team up to take down Betty Davis. Well, not exactly, but that's the funniest way to say it. Thanks for shedding light on interesting and important topics. Here's to the continuing evolution of the gay rom-com, which may or may not end in heteronormative marriage, depending on the viewpoint of the filmmakers. So thank you, Joseph. And I've got a letter here from Marin about our episode a while back on the prince of queer fashion. And Marin writes, I love the history of fashion, so this was straight up my alley. You referenced how the song Yankee Doodle talks about dandies, 
And in college, I took a class called Vampires in Slavic Culture. Best class ever, BTW. And we talked about dandies and their influence on vampire literature in the UK. The song Yankee Doodle was brought up, of course, and another great mystery of the lyrics, at least to me, was cleared up. He stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni, was not referencing the delicious pasta you eat with cheese, but a group of men in 18th century England who had traveled to Italy and enjoyed dressing outlandishly and speaking effeminately in the eyes of their English critics as they were supposedly adopting the Italian vogue, which they referred to as macaroni. I always look forward to listening to you ladies every week. Please keep up the awesome work. Well, thank you so much, Marin. Uh, and I wish that I had taken vampires and Slavic <laughs> culture when I was in college. I just wish I had macaroni now. <laughs> and if you've got letters for us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can send them. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about the science of female libido, head on over to Stuff Mom Never Told You. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 